You are listening to the India in Focus podcast, jointly brought to you by the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University and the Times of India. Hello and welcome to COVID Chronicles, part of the India in Focus podcast. My name is Sachit Balsari. Today we have Professor Manoj Mohanan, Associate Professor at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Manoj has had over 15 years of research experience in health economics in India. Professor Mohanan led COVID-19 prevalence studies in Karnataka, was co-author on the Mumbai seroprevalence study and on testing returning workers in Bihar. His team's paper in the Lancet Global Health reports that seroprevalence in Mumbai varies from 55 to 61% in the slums and to 12 to 19% in non-slum settings. Manoj, how did we get here? Thank you so much, Sachit. Uh, it's wonderful to be here with you and talk about some of our work, also think about exactly the question you asked, how did we get here? Overall, my view has been that uh, there's been a surprisingly large amount of COVID transmission that has happened in India. And there could be a number of reasons why. But just to reiterate what you just told us, we found that the zero prevalence in the slum areas in Mumbai was up to 55 to 62%. But more importantly, in some of the other work that we are doing in Karnataka, which is one of the first studies that looks at rural areas, we find very large uh, numbers there as well. We are still analyzing the data, so I'm not giving you an exact number. But the point simply is that a lot of the public debate in India has been focused on the urban areas. The numbers discussed come from urban areas. And in some sense, some of the political uh, officers across India have also claimed that this is largely an urban epidemic. And what we find and what I strongly believe in is that's not the case. Uh, it's true that the numbers have come from urban areas, but the rural areas have been equally, if not exactly equally, they've been very largely affected by the epidemic as well. But Manoj, isn't this... Um... A factor of, of time, uh, would it be fair to say that had you looked in March, you know, you would see large numbers in, in urban areas. And then, you know, if you look now in September and of October, of course, uh, the pandemic is, is, is raging through, through rural yeah. India as well. Uh, I suspect that is not what you're saying. Yeah, I, um, excellent point. Um, if you, and I'm sure you know this as well, as in late March, when the lockdown happened, one of the things that happened in India along with the lockdown was a massive migration of workers, daily workers, from the big cities back to rural areas. And in some sense, that sort of started the in immediate uh, migration of the epidemic as well from urban to rural. So you mentioned the work that Anup and I had done along with our colleagues in Bihar um, on the migrant, testing the migrant workers. And what we found was pretty stunning is uh, workers coming from Bombay, Delhi, the percentage of those workers who were currently positive was stunningly high. If 12 to 15% of the workers currently coming from the cities, in, and this is in March, were positive on RT-PCR studies, um, that's a significant amount of transmission that started even as far back as March. The second thing that seems to have happened in India is while so much of the lockdown and suppression efforts were happening in urban areas, rural areas, because they are mainly agricultural, were given a lot more uh, flexibility. And as a result of 
a combination of lack of adherence to masking and social distancing protocols combined with relaxation in rural areas, the epidemic was spreading quite rapidly. So that is something that we worry about. And I think there is a behavioral issue in here as well. What we've seen is uh, India's response started with a very strict lockdown and then very quickly in about um, four to six weeks, when it became politically untenable to keep these lockdowns going, even economically untenable, government started relaxing it. But the relaxation happened really quick. And so people went back to living their lives as if things were normal. You would see streets of Bangalore, for example. People were walking about going to malls like it was normal. And so that has led to this second wave that we are currently experiencing, but it's also now happening in rural areas as well, much as you said. We had the opportunity um, uh, some time ago to speak with uh, Professor Mushfiq Mubarak at, uh, at Yale University, who um, made this observation that there is, there is a difference in, uh, there's a large difference actually in, in the responses you get when you ask people whether they have masks and whether um, they are actually using masks correctly. And, and you make the point that the people are being seen out and about in marketplaces as if, as if the, the pandemic is, is over. This is a challenging problem around the world. You know, it has been six months. Globally, we've gone through a societal experience that we have not encountered before. And people are tired. You know, six months later, folks, folks are tired. They want to uh, go about their business. And, and I think um, uh, one of the concerns in, in, in India is that are we, are we overdoing this? Are we overplaying this? I mean, look around. It has, you know, the, the highest recovery rate, the infection, um, fatality rates uh, don't seem to be uh, that high. Um, yes, of course, um, you know, many have died, but, but uh, millions seem to have survived and are, are doing okay. Maybe India should resume activities because the economic fallout is untenable in a population that is so poor. I agree with you that perhaps it's time for India to start responding to its own epidemic. What I mean by that is in the early days of the epidemic, India had no information, no data on the state of its own epidemic. In fact, there were many efforts, even by the government itself, to actively ignore what was um, what could have been learned about the epidemic at that point in time, because the focus was very much on trying to identify cases coming into the hospital and deal with it in the in the healthcare and hospital settings. The net result was countries around the world, like India, were responding to the the massive epidemic outbreaks that were happening in Italy and New York, assuming that that's what's happening there. So what happens is exactly what you described. Fast forward six months and the fatigue of dealing with the lockdowns and the restrictions in place sets in, especially in a setting where for reasons, frankly, I just don't understand why the infection fatality rates or even the acute hospitalization rates in India have not been what we feared. To be very honest, I'm really, really thankful that our fears did not play out. But why, if there is any clear explanation about what one factor or two explains that? Um, just if, if you, I'm sure you do remember this as well, Sachit, is in April, we were worried that our hospitals were going to be overflowing with acute critical patients and that we don't have enough ventilators and ICUs 
and mortuaries would be full. That never happened. Yet, you know, by some estimates, 20-30% of India's population has already been exposed. That's just a stunning number that just does not make sense. So it's understandable that people are losing patience. But what we fail to do in the process is nudge them towards a shift in behavioral patterns where people understand that, yes, it might be lower risk than it was in, say, early stages in Italy or New York, but we need to take care. And so we need to do better at masking and distancing. You, you raise many important points there. I want to try and sort of dissect um, what you just said. The first comment was that we were not responding uh, to our uh, pandemic. We were not responding to our epidemic. Many countries around the world were responding to what was going on in, in Europe and Spain. And um, the, the defense would be, well, there was no time to wait for the pandemic to, to happen in India. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Would you not be critiqued or criticized if you did not learn from, from these other countries? Um, what do you Absolutely. think we should have done differently? What, what, uh, you know, it is March, we have very little information. We know very little about the disease. We're still debating whether it is you know, transmitted by droplets or, by, uh, or whether it is airborne. Um, how could we not have learned from Spain or Italy? What should we have done differently? Uh, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, and I, so I, I do want to recognize that. I don't envy the position of folks who had to make tough decisions then. Um, but many of us, me included, and I, I know you have written about possible ways we could have dealt with policy solutions differently. Key point here is even going back to March, April, we knew that pool testing, where rather than testing every single patient, you could pool samples um, from five or larger numbers, depending on the technology and the viral load, five or six samples from patients, and then be able to test the pool. And if a pool tests positive, then you deconvolute it and then t- test every single patient. You could save a lot of money in that sense. I see. So you're saying that, well, we didn't have enough tests. And if you wanted to test 15 people and, and you did not have 15 tests and you just had a few, maybe begin exactly. with three, three tests, test five people, and then whittle it down. And if, if you got lucky and five people were uh, tested negative, then, then you were done with those five. And then you just needed to um, focus on, on the remaining 10 and all you used up is one test. Uh, is, is, this, exactly. uh, is, is this actually done? Is this a theoretical exercise yeah. or is this? No, uh, no, no. Track? It's very much done. In fact, my own uh, home university at Duke, we are doing about 15,000 tests a week now and it's all done with pool testing. And the reason why they can do such large samples is precisely because of this. In fact, I would go one step further. Even in India, so the study that Anup and Anu Acharya and I Uh, did in Karnataka, that's what exactly what we did is we collected samples and we pooled them. One big lesson, however, is if India had to do this in March, it was feasible. As the epidemic starts growing a lot and there are lots of positive people who are currently infectious, then it doesn't become um, a sensible thing to do. You might actually end up just finding that somebody in every given pool is positive and that would totally ruin the numbers there. So going back to your questions, I said, what could you have done? One, you could have got a really good um, data collection process in place. So you, you have to respond, assuming the worst, but then you don't have to continue doing that for months at a time. You could have done testing to find out what share of the population has already been infected. We didn't know that until 
the studies from Delhi, Bombay started coming out. Was were those tests invented? Were those tests available in March and April? Was it possible to to do those tests? Yeah, um, I I don't remember the exact dates, but going at least as far back as uh, May, some of these tests had started becoming available. So RT PCR was available. Um, the serology tests initial ones that came in were not so good but the problem was um there was we we ended up throwing the baby out with the bathwater in some sense what i mean is there's a huge amount of heterogeneity in the quality of tests that came in and we just didn't have the ability to check the um accuracy of these tests the specificity the sensitivity of these tests that were coming in and then pick and choose which ones we got because the demand was so high at that point so we lost that window and you're absolutely right that was happening in march and april but that doesn't mean that you know may things didn't change june things didn't change um but there was there was an unwillingness to use a the testing the pool testing techniques for uh population level sample because key, the key part remember again is it's not so much about what test but about whom you test let's let's pause there for a second um whom whom should you test um you know there were clear directives uh from from um ICMR as well as as local public health officials um including warnings in 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 many cities including in 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 Mumbai for doctors to not test anyone other than that was symptomatic and and yeah. uh you know the defense of course is that there are very few tests and and therefore should we not test uh just the symptomatics uh you know cool. when you have a limited number of tests um uh, others have yeah. argued that in the middle of a pandemic you know that the symptomatics have the disease um should you not aggressively test all possible um asymptomatic uh exposures uh because yeah. those are the folks that may not uh realize that they have they have testing so how would this have played out if 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 you um uh, could do this differently with the recognition that you know uh, as you said hindsight is 2020 yeah. how would you use these tools of pool testing and the kinds of tests that were available uh to test folks what would be the ideal scenario uh for mumbai in in april or may 2020 um such so as i'll i'll take those couple of points you mentioned very seriously in the in the sense yes tests were few but if we decide that we are going to use those tests only for the patients that assumes there is a certain underlying model that is everybody who gets sick with this particular virus will sooner or later show up in the hospital part 1 part 2 is it's possible they don't have covid they have something else we need to check that it is covid and we once we verify we have a specific drug that will cure the patient that's the clinical way of thinking about it and as a doctor you know better than i do that oftentimes we do diagnostic testing for patients because that influences our treatment regimen and that's typically how one would think about it except here it was symptomatic management it's not like we had any drugs that we could say aha this is covid and i'm going to give you drugs a b c and d and then if you don't have covid i will not give you um so in that sense the clinical management approach to diagnostic testing was what was driving those policy decisions in the first place now the second thing you said which really informs what we should have done and 
And to be fair, a lot of us going back to April of this year had been arguing that testing asymptomatics is going to be the key to handling this epidemic. And the reason is simple. Let's say you and I are both infected and infectious. You are asymptomatic. Meanwhile, I have, I'm showing all the symptoms. I'm breathless. I'm clearly febrile. I'm probably sneezing or coughing. People will stay away from me. Just by looking at me being a, a visibly sick person, they will probably step back in the times of the pandemic and not want to come too close. On the other hand, if you're asymptomatic, you might go on with your life as normal and all your friends might go on with their lives as normal hanging out with you. Effectively, you might end up spending, spreading the epidemic a lot more than I would. And that's a key part of understanding whom we want to test if we want to prevent spread of the epidemic. So in some sense, again, it goes back to what was happening was they were using tests as if they were going to treat a patient Instead, we should have used, and used whatever limited number of tests we had to try and say, can I get a representative sample from various parts of the geography? Here are 15 pockets that I think might be where the infection is raging. Let me go in there, quickly do those tests, and come back and learn something. And maybe we should have targeted interventions to limit mobility outside of those areas so then we can do something about it. So, Does that so make sense? Yeah, I want, I want to pick up on that. So you were saying that uh, a clinical solution and thinking around testing was applied to a public health problem. And the reason you test as a clinician is very different from how a public health practitioner would want to use the, the very same test. So as a clinician, I want to test to make sure that indeed what you have is COVID, especially in India where people present with fever and respiratory symptoms for a variety of other diseases, you know, various viruses, but mm -hmm. certainly um, pneumonias and tuberculosis. And then you want to make sure that you're going down the right diagnostic pathway. Um, mm -hmm. and, and as a public health practitioner, uh, your, the, the goal of your test is, is not about treating that particular patient only, while, while that is an important objective, uh, without you know, getting into whether treatments were available or not. But the goal of testing is also to inform uh, your strategies around isolation, quarantine, and maybe even containment of entire neighborhoods. I'm testing Absolutely. to see whether the pandemic is here, whether it has arrived yeah. in this neighborhood, and, and what I should do. Um, were were um, those tests positive? Um, is that Absolutely. Correct? Absolutely. I'll add one more thing to that is um, in terms of the sort of when, whom you test and for what, because if we were able to go back to April and start testing random subsets of population, we might have learned that there are some types of individuals uh, who are actually infectious and we might have been able to inform their surrounding community members to take more care. It's not without problems, and I'll be very upfront about this. I think the scare factor that had already come in, the fear factor, could have meant it could create more problems. And I think there is no easy solution to this. I just think this is something we have to confront. You raise a very important uh, point. You talk about about fear and and um, whether it's fear about the the disease or or the impact of the disease. You happen to be in Bangalore uh, on your sabbatical 
during the, the pandemic. Can you describe what was happening around you? What, what were people yeah. concerned about? I mean, of course, there were, there were you know, the social media reports from, from Europe uh, that talked about ventilator scarcity and sort of just how uh, devastating this disease could be to societies. But you know, by April or May, we also had reports from, from other parts in the world that began to show irrefutably that, that the um, disease had a uh, very different impact in different age groups. Um, yeah. So people were scared based on the social media reports that they were seeing from Italy and Spain about how the lives of hundreds of thousands were imperiled when these hospitals were completely overflowing with, with yeah. very sick uh, COVID-19 patients. Um, so say more about, about the fear. Why, why, why is that not the right response? Um, I think the fear is helpful when it's based on some either the facts or some or understanding of what might be happening. The fear factor that I was referring to earlier was, in some sense, you know, you would turn people into pariahs simply because um, they had traveled somewhere and they would like turn their entire house would be barricaded and people would not be allowed to come in. And it just led to weird social problems. And so the fear of the disease versus fear of people who have the disease are two separate things. And there was definitely, at least in initially, a phase where the government had done well-intentioned, but um, I would say slightly naive things like posting names of people who had arrived from other countries. Uh, this is happening at the beginning of March. And then that led to a lot of people getting uh, not just isolated, but also being treated as if they had done something wrong. Um, and that was that was not not very nice, uh, difficult to deal with. But you asked me about what was happening in Bangalore is soon after the lockdown was announced. Bangalore actually did a really good job in enforcing such lockdowns. And they were maybe a little too well because... Soon people started losing um, their you know, willingness to participate in the lockdown and there were protests happening. There, the political lobbies were getting together and saying certain uh, industries and labor sector needed to be helped out and so on and so forth. But then what was also happening is exactly as we spoke earlier, the infection had already been seeded. And so once the infection is seeded and you have imposed lockdowns, then you're essentially then forcing the infection or rather forcing communities to uh, interact among themselves. And so then we started seeing growth of uh, infection within these communities. So just to give you one anecdotal uh, instance, the neighborhood I was living in had about 80 staff members. It was a fairly large complex and they tested all of them in the month of June, June or July, if I'm not mistaken, pretty sure it was June or July, about half of these staff workers had already developed antibodies to the infection. There were no symptomatic cases, but all of them, about half of them, um, had already developed antibodies. And that's the stunning part, is this is during the lockdown. The infection was already spreading internally. And so once the lockdown is released, people start mingling more and that changed everything in uh, Bangalore, which initially looked like it was doing very well. Could the lockdown not have actually helped 
slow the disease, right? So you're saying that even in the lockdown, there was such high prevalence. Had the lockdown not happened, wouldn't it have been even more and overwhelmed yes. the health system even more? Absolutely. I'm not. I'm not saying. I. I think. I. I agree with you 100%. Is that the lockdown was necessary, but then what you do during the time of the lockdown and how you introduce it and how you communicate that information becomes important. Let's so the talk lockdown about, was. Sorry. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I. I really think it comes down to the communication aspect. Um, there was so much misinformation that was happening at the same time. And then the government was giving conflicting messages about turning districts into red, green, yellow areas based on who's reporting what. It it prevented in some sense an, an honest intellectual discussion about the nature of an epidemic. Uh, my very cynical view on this is we treated the, the COVID-19 epidemic, which is serious and extremely infectious, as if it were Ebola that's being transmitted like it's measles. And it wasn't. And that's part of what happened. Is The day people woke up and said, wait a minute, this is not Ebola. It's not going to kill half of us. They just stopped worrying about it. Economists, especially behavioral economists, um, will, will have a lot to say and write about how the world has responded to this epidemic, you know, including uh, the, the, the unmasked masses in, in, in America that continue to believe that, that the pandemic is, is, is a hoax. Um, in India, you, we have a largely blind population. You know, there is a lot of sort of criticism about folks wanting to return to, to their lives and, and, and not cooperating. But, but to be fair, this is a population that was, you know, given a four-hour notice for a lockdown and locked down. <laughs> and, 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 and folks stayed at home. There is uh, still uh, belief in government. Um, and, and there is... Uh, by and large trust over sort of 70 years of India's history, not at particular political moments in time. Um, mm. This is this is a population that that trusts government, unlike, um, you know, the United States, for example, uh, currently or, or several um, democracies in, in the world where there is um, high levels of mistrust of, 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 yeah. of public messaging. Um, how uh, and 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 despite and despite that, um, this particular um, intervention of of forced uh, quarantine and and isolation uh, is a, is what I, as a clinician, as a public health practitioner, have found found very disturbing. This it, it seems like we did not learn from the risks of uh, stigmatization we have seen. Uh, with the leprosy in, in recent memory in India and, and in mm -hmm. even more recent memory and, and to somewhat uh, current experience with HIV. That stigmatization sort of gets you nowhere. It not yeah. only um, really makes uh, access to care very hard for people with the disease, um, but it, uh, as, as, you, as you said, you know, it, it creates such rifts in society that a cogent public health response is very difficult. And, yeah. and what was concerning from, from the outside is that uh, folks uh, with symptoms, uh, irrespective of, of the severity, uh, they, along with their family members, were being asked to leave uh, their homes, mm -hmm. being taken to um, isolation facilities or quarantine facilities that were away from their homes, um, and, and entire neighborhoods were being sealed. 
and yeah. that that resulted in a few different things you know so the fear and the concern that that you you raise is 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 um is is very legitimate irrespective of what socioeconomic class you are in you sort of don't want to be mm-hmm. dragged away from your home um all you have access is to you know these social media messages about how terrible the disease is and so you're frightened um but then you are also inadvertently sort of blamed for for then um foisting mm-hmm. misery upon all all your your mm-hmm. neighbors um how did we go so wrong there was no precedent i mean you 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 said oh we were treating the pandemic that was happening elsewhere but there was a little precedent for for this kind of draconian um locking of 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 individuals how did we get there ah i don't know such as i think the first half of your question was somewhat related to the trust in government and and government willing to say that uh there are people who are spreading it but it was not value free statement right it almost made it look like there were some individuals some populations who are bringing in the infection in times of uh great social disasters like this one it's always convenient to identify someone or someone else and blame them for our miseries and in some sense that was happening like i i even if you if you if to give you a very concrete example mid march to late march when the the return of the the daily laborers started migrating back to their home states there were no transport they were walking thousands of miles and yet many of my friends some of many of whom you know as well would complain how sitting in their high rise apartments they were able to see the migrants who are gathering and trying to walk home and how they are spreading the disease it very quickly turns into an us and them because you can blame someone else and that stigma issue that you mentioned is extremely important um to prevent stigma we might rely on the infrastructure or the resources we have available to not subject ourselves to the state's whim at that point to try and send us to in isolation centers but then there is a huge socioeconomic difference in terms of who can do that i am a poor person who lives in a small little house surrounded in by by other neighbors and they get to know i'm sick they have every reason to complain that you know i need to be moved versus i live in a really plush complex with lots of space between me and my neighbors i might be able to uh go through the entire episode without anyone knowing about it and so the the way the stigma and the uh discrimination played out was very much along social socioeconomic lines so that that's, that's and, another aspect to it and and that is what your studies have shown um as as yeah. well um that that the disease has had a differential impact on populations not unique to india all the data coming mm-hmm. out from other countries show that it varies by age it varies by socioeconomic status it varies by by race um there are structural yeah. inequalities here in the united states where you and i both now live where the disease has ravaged um you know minority mm-hmm. populations who've had you know high levels of underlying comorbidity difficult access to to healthcare and to some extent have not had the opportunity to have the luxury of physical distances they they cannot sit at home and work on their laptops those are not the kinds uh-huh. of of jobs jobs they have exactly so so it is you know while while it is um uh easy of course for for uh, you know at this point to critique 
government sponsors anywhere in the world. What do we do now? So here we are six, seven months later, after after the first lockdown in India, uh, you um, have observed that there are parts of India where the seroprevalence is much higher than you would expect, meaning that the tests mm -hmm. that show whether or not you have antibodies show that large sections of society um, have already gotten gotten the, the disease, um, yeah. that not as many people as we expected um, uh, fell, fell sick. Certainly, we don't seem to have had the large numbers of people uh, that we thought would have died from it. Um, there is some, some um, intellectual heft to the argument that it would be important to look at these uh, numbers adjusting for age. India, of course, unlike um, um, Europe, is a young country. Most Indians are in their 20s. And so mm -hmm. from what we know of the disease, uh, the majority who would who would get the infection, you know, would uh, would not fall very sick because they're young, they have good immune systems. Others would argue that other than the elderly, of which, you know, we have very few, about 6% of the population, uh, that the age groups just below that uh, may not be as healthy as in other high income settings. We may have more heart disease, more untreated diabetes, yeah. more respiratory diseases. So given all of all of these various complexities, um, the bottom line uh, right now from the data that we have access to is that um, vast a uh, number of Indians uh, seem to have gotten it. Most of them may have been asymptomatic infections. Not too many have fallen very sick. Not too many have died. Uh, so is, is this what herd immunity is, is about? Is this the Barrington Declaration where scientists are saying, let the disease spread through uh, the country and, and society will uh, recover much more rapidly? Did India get it right? I'm hesitant to go that far, Sachit. Um, I agree with you on all of the points you mentioned. There's all these possible reasons why India might have uh, gotten lucky this time. But there are a couple of things that we still don't know. One is, uh, there is there are growing number of reports, although still very, very few of reinfection. Is it going to happen? Is those, are those numbers going to grow more in the future? We don't know yet. The second thing around the concerns around herd immunity is, you know, even going from 30 to 60 percent is going to be many hundreds of millions of people in India. So it's very possible that individuals who first got infected because of their work and their uh, social interaction or presence in neighborhoods outside might be very different from the next 30 percent of people who will be infected. Um, for exactly reasons you mentioned, once you account for age profile and who leaves the home and who doesn't leave the home, which, as you know, in the aging population in India does not uh, leave homes or interact as much as they do in, say, Europe or North America. How that's going to play out is, is something we, we honestly still don't know. I agree with you that... Um, it's very likely that once you account for the age structure and social interactions, we might find slightly different numbers, considerably different numbers even. Um, so going back to herd immunity, is I'm, I'm not sure one can feel comfortable quite yet that you know India is nearing herd immunity. If the epidemic continues as it is currently going through, it's very likely that at least you know, half the population by the end of the year would have been exposed in some way, shape, or form. Uh, 
Um, but the worry that I have is not so much about how many people are exposed, but how many people are exposed, how quickly. Because even with the size of India's population, even if a small fraction of the population uh, needs hospital care or needs critical care, and the epidemic is allowed to just run free, we will, our health systems will not be able to cope with it. And that's the key point is, uh, in some sense, we talked a lot earlier on about pushing the curve down and flattening the curve. That language seems to have since passed. We're not hearing that as much. But I still think it's important even today is even if the rest of the population will eventually get infected, I'd much rather they get infected later than sooner so that um, we can cope with it as it comes along. And these are tough challenges in, in, in India, especially. So as a clinician, when I hear you say that, it, it makes me happy to hear you about flattening the curve because the ramifications in the health system are, are manifold, right? It is not only mm -hmm. that we don't have the acute care capacity in India. I mean, you can build as many ventilators and hospitals you want, but you know, we don't have the trained respiratory techs, the nurses, the ICU doctors, we need to care for these patients. But because of the initial fear and stigmatization, which is going to be impossible to reverse in, in the coming months, uh, the access to, to health um, has also been heavily compromised. So every time there's a peak, and especially when there is a sort of a massive peak and the numbers climb, folks stop going to hospitals for, for um, routine care as well. I mean, either uh -huh. they're not allowed to because the hospitals are shut down or they just cannot, or they're under lockdown or just the fear of going to hospitals and, and getting COVID uh, also uh, impacts healthcare. So the ramifications on both clinical care and, and public health around the world um, have have been been uh, very hard. So there is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure. So then folks say, listen, get get get, be, be done with this sooner than later. How long can you can you um, drag it out? What are the mm -hmm. data? What are the data uh, saying? So you know, these are all sort of theories, and we can hypothesize and and based on our own own experience. But but um, uh, your work has has. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, but your work is always adhered to to um, rigorous standards of, of evidence uh, collection. What are we learning about the epidemic in India? These people, um, let's go back to the question of, you know, why are Indians um, not falling as sick? Are we, are we seeing something in the tests, in the numbers that, yeah. that, that, that actually validate that, that maybe uh, the disease is not um, as severe? Um, you know, there were theories in, in March and April about how our immunity may uh, come to the rescue. There have been conversations about T-cell immunity. What do the data yeah. show? So, um, great question, Sachit. I, I, I don't think we have complete answers. There are few nuggets of empirical evidence that seem to suggest there might be some truth to the theories. And I must, on, I must be very honest, I bristle when I hear... Um, some of our colleagues talk about how Indians have better immunity because of our diet and the temperature and the sunlight and so on and so forth. But the thing that I have seen talking to several of our colleagues who run large testing operations is the RT-PCR viral, viral loads that we see on RT-PCR that have been reported among positive patients in India is considerably low. And it's something that we just don't understand why that it's, it's, it's so low. It's basically there's a lot of people who are just at the threshold who are testing positive, um, but 
compared to the average viral load that we've seen in um, other large infections, whether it was in New York, Italy, and so on. Why that is baffles me. And the same thing happens with um, the seroprevalence studies as well. That is the antibodies in these populations. We see a big difference in urban versus rural. What we find is there's a lot of people who have low levels of antibodies, but not low, but not adequate to show up positive in the testing results. So essentially, the test sensitivity varies dramatically between populations. And that's, that's an important point, because what it's telling you is there is some low level of exposure that a lot of folks are getting, and they are registering antibodies, but it's not large enough to, to sort of show up as positive on current tests or at least the current thresholds we have set for the test. Are these people um, it's really immune? Are these people immune, even if you're testing? I don't know. Hmm. Well, we don't know, right? Because all the test will tell us is you have antibodies or not. But in reality, it's not a dichotomous result. It's a, There's a continuous range of values, and we've set a cutoff value. right? It, it's not like it's no antibody, no antibody, and suddenly you have a lot of antibodies. It's, in fact... What we find is a continuous distribution, and then we draw, draw a cutoff line saying above this level, level, we will say that you have antibodies. Below this level, we'll say you don't. But it doesn't mean that nobody has antibodies. That's the bizarre part of this whole testing the part of it. Where I would go with thinking about inference to answer your question about immunity is I think there might be a charitable way of describing this is there might be something like a survivorship bias going on. That is, if I am a 65-year-old male living in an urban slum in India, the fact that I'm 65 and still alive after having been exposed to so many insults to my uh, immune system and so many exposures to various different infections is I've learned to survive. My immunity has learned to survive. I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing. What that sadly means is that a lot of other folks who might have succumbed are already dead. Um, and that goes back to the age distribution issue that you were talking about, is who is missing in that age distribution are folks who might not have survived. And that could explain some of these results. Again, this is purely conjecture at this point. Um, all we know for a fact is two things. One is the low viral loads on RT-PCR, which are frankly puzzling in India. Um, and then the, the antibody response, I think we should start reporting it not as a zero one, but at various different levels of sensitivity. And that will vastly change our estimate on how many people have been exposed. What um, an, an incredible learning experience for 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 the global community of, of scientists and, and clinicians as well. Uh, you know this this um, notion of of um, uh, dose based response, right? That that inoculum yeah. matters. It's how much virus are you being being exposed to? How much virus are you shedding? You know these super sh uh, shedders that that um, recent articles have have talked about. Um, early on, you know there were articles in in, in the the, the lay press, uh, one especially by Dr. Uh, Sadat Mukherjee about um, how inoculum may, may explain the differences you are seeing in sort of uh, 
the morbidity and mortality even among healthcare providers as, as, as you know, doctors and nurses were, were better prepared. Uh, they were falling uh, less sick from, from the exposures. Uh, and a very recent article in, in the New England Journal of Medicine that talked about how masking may in fact be uh, helping with spreading this low dose infection saying, look, even if it doesn't prevent infection 100%, uh, you are both shedding less uh, as well as um, inhaling uh, less the mm-hmm. load and and could mm-hmm. this in fact inadvertently um, uh, you know contribute towards um, herd immunity because you're essentially you know de facto uh, de facto um, vaccinating folks with low yeah. low doses of of yeah. the the virus. Um, what do we do now? Here we are, six months later. You know there have been challenges with 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 testing. Um, we, we've pivoted from, you know, treating the pandemic elsewhere to trying to address the epidemic in, in India. I think there's growing recognition um, that uh, the clinical approach, as you said, to, to testing um, needs to be um, abandoned or complemented with a population health-based approach to testing. Um, are we there? What should we be doing? Where is India headed at, at, the, at the rates and the uh, virulence levels that you're seeing? Yeah. So I'll, I'll think, I, I'll, I'll put on an optimist hat on for this one because I think it's, it's easy to um, keep seeing how dismal things are and they are, but I think we need to uh, look at the bright side on some of these issues. One is um, there is hope don't know guarantees that there might be a vaccine available in the next six months, year, year and a half, whatever that number is. When it comes along, we need a plan for distributing the vaccine and getting it to people. And that that there's a whole body of work on thinking about how that needs to be done. I will not comment on that. Let's assume that somehow we can figure out how to get our vaccines to people. But between now and then, if we can do whatever is necessary to minimize the exposure to people who've not yet been exposed in a way that does not take away their livelihoods, that's worth doing. And what that translates into is two things. One is masks. It's not that expensive to mask. It takes behavioral change. It takes some level of commitment and signaling and clear communication from all levels of government and civil society. It can be done. We've all, frankly, we are already seeing it. Um, just to give you an example, Sachet, on, on our campus at Duke, we've all been teenagers and college students, and we've all been irresponsible at that age. I am always impressed when I see young college kids today now, the vast majority of them are adhering to mask wearing, and they are sanitizing their hands, they're either uh, congregating in small groups or maintaining social distance. It's very unusual to behave like that when you're a teenager. And that's already happening. And I see that as as a positive sign. It takes time to change behavior at such a massive level. So if we can keep pushing on that. And the second thing is some relevance uh, or sort of reliance on data-based approaches. So I can tell you for a fact that the state government of Bihar, for instance, has been talking to us for every two weeks. They ask us to analyze data on where their epidemics are. And they give us information on district level number of cases 
and help them understand where the cases are growing rapidly so that they can focus their efforts on making sure there aren't too many uh, large public gatherings or too much risk of transmission in those areas. And so targeting the lockdown rather than saying it's statewide lockdown or statewide release. And that has, if you, if you look at Bihar's numbers, it has been really impressive how they've been able to respond to the epidemic in recent times. And so I think approaches like that, twofold, one is the behavioral aspects of hand washing and mask wearing combined with a sensible way of government intervention is absolutely necessary until a vaccine comes along. I can't help but note how just those initial images from from Europe and reports from from Wuhan um, terrorized uh, inadvertently populations around the world and and the uh, response to this uh, pandemic has been uh, so infrastructure heavy, you know, the, the testing it has required, the building of hospitals and ventilators, uh, digital contact tracing apps and, you know, dashboards and modeling and forecasting. And here we are six months later, where, you know, um, a lot of the drugs that have been uh, peddled as cures have, have panned out not, not to work. Uh, and, and, you know, the trials have, have, have shown this irrefutably. Um, but, but all we are left with is, uh, you know, the basic pr principles of, of sanitation and, and hygiene uh, that we first learned in the uh, 19th century, you know, that of, of hand washing uh, with, the, yeah. with the added precaution of, uh, you know, facial coverings to, to yeah. go on with, with your life. Simple, elegant public health solutions have always borne um, such powerful results. You know, through the through the history of of, of um, public health, uh, whether uh, you know sanitation and sewage in London um, or oral rehydrating salts um, uh, formulated in, in Dhaka and the cholera camps. Um, yep. You know, it's 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 sometimes not uh, it, it's sometimes not the most uh, colorful flourishes uh, that are the most effective. I agree. I think future generations will also add Max to that that list that you just told us about. <laughs> I hope. Professor Mohanan, always a pleasure. Thank you kindly for your time. Thank you so much. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you for tuning in. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and check out past episodes by visiting our show page at mithalsouthasiainstitute.harvard.edu slash India in Focus podcast. Until next time. <laughs>